Welcome to TopCast and to my latest episode on my discussions of the fabric of reality. We're up to part two of chapter eight, chapter eight being the significance of life. And last time we really spent time unpacking what this thing life is. As a knowledge-bearing entity, we didn't quite get to the crux of the matter. Why is it significant in the universe? And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Last time I did mention some of the great luminaries in biology, in evolutionary biology. And the greatest living evolutionary biologist is, of course, Richard Dawkins. Until recently, when he unfortunately passed away, Stephen Jay Gould also occupied an important place in the history of our understanding of evolutionary biology. There were ways in which Dawkins and Gould were at loggerheads about the details of evolutionary science. Gould, in particular, wasn't a great fan of the selfish gene idea. He thought that, for example, we could have species selection and group selection, that the unit of selection did not need to be the gene as such. Dawkins is on the other side of that argument and says, the only thing that's being selected is the gene. And this is the perspective I have been explaining. But during the week, someone contacted me about a completely different issue. This was about how do we go about trying to understand what colours, for example, dinosaurs were. Imagine we don't have the evidence yet, and you're making a movie, and you want to predict what the colour of the particular dinosaur is. If you don't have the evidence, what can you do? How can you use evolutionary science to perhaps try to guess what adaptation the dinosaur would have had? And this got me thinking of something that Gould wrote that I think that he was on the side of Dawkins with. Although, when you read accounts of the debate on this particular paper I'm about to mention, there is some suggestion that one of the motivations that Stephen Jay Gould wrote this paper with a collaborator was in order to attack some of Dawkins' ideas. But I think this is just <laughs> one of those interesting sociological aspects of science. I think we can look at this paper independently of the sometimes more personal differences that Gould and Dawkins might have had. Now, when you read the paper by Gould that I'm about to talk about, Dawkins doesn't actually get mentioned. But apparently, and again, I'm no expert as such on evolutionary biology, apparently the theme running through this thing is a bit of a dig at Dawkins, or at least this idea of the selfish gene. That said, I don't really get that sense. The paper is called, and it's been cited tens of thousands of times, it's called The Spandrels of San Marco and the Panglossian Paradigm, a critique of the adaptionist program by Stephen Jay Gould, and his collaborator is Richard C. Lewinton. And Richard Lewinton went on to say that really he didn't contribute much to the paper. We'll just take him at his word. Stephen Jay Gould passed away a few years ago, so perhaps Richard Lewinton was just being nice. Who knows? Doesn't really matter. This is one of those papers that I really valued getting the opportunity to spend some time really investigating when I was at university. As I say, I did this subject called Philosophy of Biology, and the lecturer was a great fan of Stephen Jay Gould, not so much a fan of Richard Dawkins. But this is one of the papers that we spent a lot of time unpacking. And so I remember it reasonably well, but I went back and I read it again, because it comes to bear on this question of, what colour were the dinosaurs? If we don't have any evidence, or we don't understand, we don't have a sufficient amount of DNA to reform a particular dinosaur... We're guessing, when we're drawing pictures of dinosaurs, when we're making movies of dinosaurs, we're largely guessing as to precisely what they look like. We've got bones that have turned into rocks called fossils. 
that's what we've got to go by. So how can we figure out what colour they are? I think there's actually some quite clever techniques today where some of the dinosaurs, at least, we can have some idea of what they might have looked like. I don't know what those techniques are exactly, but you can look that up. In any case, this paper is about something called the Spandrels of San Marco. Okay, so what's a spandrel? Well, firstly, let's start there. So if you've got an arched doorway, just imagine an arched doorway, then if it's in a wall somewhere, the arches themselves form semi-triangular spaces between where the arch itself is and where the top of the roof, let's say, is. There's a little triangular space just there. Now, in that triangular space, you're limited as to what can go there, but it's a necessary part of making an archway. You're making an archway. The reason why this doorway is there at all is for a particular purpose, so people can get through the door. People can get through this particular space. That's why it's there. That's what the function is for. And an arch is a particularly strong structure. So human beings design arches, and the arch forms this strong structure that allows people to walk beneath it, okay? It's also part of the way in which the ceiling is held up, let's say. But the spandrel is this space between the arch and the ceiling. Okay, right, what's that got to do with evolution? Okay, we're getting there. What is San Marco? San Marco is a basilica, a huge church in Italy, and there are lots of archways there. Let's just go to what Gould has to say about these spandrels of San Marco. And maybe there you'll see where I'm going with all this. San Marco or St. Mark's, as Gould will be using the term. Reading from Gould, quote, The great central dome of St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice presents in its mosaic design a detailed iconography expressing the mainstays of the Christian faith. Three circles of figures radiate out from a central image of Christ, angels, disciples, and virtues. Each circle is divided into quadrants, even though the dome itself is radially symmetrical in structure. Each quadrant meets one of the four spandrels in the arches below the dome. Spandrels, the tapering triangular spaces formed by the intersection of two rounded arches at right angles, are necessary architectural byproducts of mounting a dome on rounded arches. Each spandrel contains a design admirably fitted into its tapering space. An evangelist sits in the upper part, flanked by the heavenly cities. Below, a man representing one of the four biblical rivers, Tigris, Euphrates, Indus, and Nile, pours water from a pitcher in the narrowing space below his feet. End quote. Okay, so there we have Gould describing what these spandrels are. They are ornate. In the space between the arch and the ceiling, if you like, there has been an ornate pitcher placed. Okay, so what he's about to come to is, imagine you're coming across this for the first time and you need to explain this design. Well, just as with living organisms, there's a problem there of explaining the design, the apparent design. We know there's no designer. We know there's no designer. But there's the appearance of design that calls out for an explanation. The explanation is Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, which Gould is a great proponent of. Okay, the same as Dawkins, he's not going to deny that evolution is a real thing. There's just a, a difference on what the unit of selection is. But here we're talking about where do we begin in trying to understand what the design of this thing is? So if you're looking at this archway and your eye is immediately drawn to the spandrel, to the iconography, the, the detailed artistic work in the corner there, well, that's the wrong place to start. <laughs> that's not why the archway exists at all. It's certainly intricate and it looks for all the world highly designed and so on and so forth but the real thing you should be looking at is the archway now 
this is where we get into part of the distinction between Gould and Dawkins. Gould wants to talk about the entire organism. Okay, he wants to start there rather than the little details. But this spandrel idea, I think, is separate to the selfish gene versus group or species selection idea. I just want to read a little bit more of Gould and we'll come back to what the punchline here is for me and what I'm talking about. Gould is saying on the spandrels, quote, oh, by the way, by the way, before before I get to the quote again, um, it's worth looking up the spandrels of St. Marco if you just want a picture, okay? I can put one up here on the screen, but of course, for any listeners, you might need to just quickly Google what a spandrel is <laughs> to begin with, and then the spandrels of St. Marco have a look at the ornate pictures there. Gould goes on to say, quote, the design is so elaborate, harmonious, and purposeful that we are tempted to view it as the starting point of any analysis, as the cause, in some sense, of the surrounding architecture. But this would invert the proper path of analysis. The system begins with an architectural constraint. The necessary four spandrels and their tapering triangular form, they provide a space in which the mosaics worked. They set the quadripartite symmetry of the dome above. Such architectural constraints abound, and we find them easy to understand because we do not impose our biological biases on them. Every fan-vaulted ceiling must have a series of open spaces along the midline of the vault, where the sides of the fans intersect between the pillars. Since the spaces must exist, they are often used for ingenious ornamental effect. In King's College Chapel in Cambridge, for example, the spaces contain bosses alternately embellished with the Tudor rose and porticulus. In a sense, this design represents an adaptation, but the architectural constraint is clearly primary. These spaces arise as a necessary byproduct of fan vaulting. Their appropriate use is a secondary effect. Anyone who tried to argue that the structure exists because the alternation of rows and porticles makes so much sense in a Tudor cathedral would be inviting the same ridicule that Voltaire heaped on Dr. Pangloss. Things cannot be other than they are. Everything is made for the best purpose. Our noses were made to carry spectacles, so we have spectacles. Legs were clearly invented for breeches, so we wear them. Yet evolutionary biologists, in their tendency to focus exclusively on immediate adaptation to local conditions, do tend to ignore architectural constraints and perform just such an inversion of explanation. End quote. So what I'm going to say about all of this is that not everything that is in an organism is adapted for. Uh, sometimes I hear certain popularizers say, oh, okay, so he's not a popularizer, but he's someone who's at least somewhat informed about science, somewhat informed about biology, claims to have studied biology for a little while and then went on to philosophy, the comedian Ricky Gervais. Okay, so there's all sorts of wrong with what Ricky Gervais thinks about how science works. But one thing he says when trying to explain evolution to people is the thing exists because it works. So the reason why bacteria are around are because they work, they got something right. The reason why the insects and the grubs and all the other things that, that aren't particularly intelligent are still around is because they work, evolutionarily speaking. But what I would say about that is not everything needs to work, by which I mean serves a functional purpose, serves a functional purpose, or at least you can misunderstand what the feature happens to be and what the functional purpose might be. Uh, here's another example. So you're looking at blood. You're looking at blood coursing through the veins. Now, you might ask the question, what is the evolutionary adaptation of having red blood? Why is it red? Okay. Why has it adapted itself to being red? Why not blue or something else? It's kind of the wrong question. It's not that it's adapted to be red. It's that hemoglobin carries oxygen and oxygen-carrying hemoglobin looks red. It didn't adapt to be red. The, the hemoglobin adapted to carry oxygen. Why is it carrying oxygen? Well, it keeps the organism alive. 
But the red is a byproduct, a byproduct. And so this is the point that Gould's making, is that in organisms we have sometimes a byproduct, a thing that doesn't really call out for explanation. Beyond it's just, well, that's just what the colour of haemoglobin carrying oxygen is. It just happens to be red. Or you could, you know, talk about any number of diseases of age that people get over time. It's like, why did we adapt ourselves to get that? Why do we adapt ourselves to get bad knees and bad backs as we get older? What is the adaptation for? Why should a human evolve in such a way that they that it's advantageous for them to have bad backs later on in life? Well, it's a wrong question. <laughs> we didn't not every characteristic that a person has, has been adapted for. It's not like we have evolved for that particular thing. It's not like that thing needs to be beneficial. Uh, Dawkins does agree with this in a sense. Dawkins, I've heard him talk about um, the the just-so stories when we don't have a good explanation. Okay, so he doesn't use the term good explanation. But uh, I think people have asked him over time questions like, and this has appeared in some of his books, more than one of his books, I think, the question of why should homosexuality exist? Why should there be an adaptive pressure for homosexuality in any given species? And he says, look, people can give just so stories, by which he means you could you could make up a story. You can say things like, oh, well, you know, when we lived in tribes, the homosexual people didn't compete for mates, but they did still look after the children. Now, that's that's an account of why it could be reasonable to say that homosexuality continues to arise in humans. But then why does it arise in other species as well? Okay, so do we have to find an advantageous reason for the existence of this thing? Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why genes get copied over and over again and continue to get copied, why the knowledge, the useful information gets copied. But that's not to say that all information that exists on the genome must be useful. It could be the equivalent of a spandrel. Okay, this isn't denying that there is knowledge content in the genome. Absolutely, there is. Okay, and that's the knowledge stuff. That's the knowledge stuff, and that gets copied. That tends to get copied. But does that? But does the existence of information that is useful that gets copied deny the fact that there could be useless information that gets copied? Could that happen, or just information that's not that functional, or information that's not competing with other kinds of useful information? Could that get copied? Yes, it can. Now we're going to talk today in the fabric of reality about junk DNA. I'm not talking about that. Junk DNA is part of the DNA that's not part of the genome. It's the stuff that can just mutate and then it gets copied. It gets copied regardless, okay? So it's it's useless kind of stuff. This is different again. This is part of the genome that could get copied. The equivalent of a spandrel, the equivalent of, well, is there information there in the DNA that specifies the redness of hemoglobin? No, no. The redness is a byproduct. Now, there's certainly information in the DNA there that specifies that hemoglobin has to be manufactured. You need to have hemoglobin. This protein hemoglobin needs to be produced by the body so that the oxygen can be transported through the bloodstream. And it happens that when the hemoglobin combines with oxygen, it produces this red colour. But that's not specified in the DNA as such. There's no gene for redness, is what I'm saying, and what someone like Gould would be saying in the DNA. It can be a byproduct. There can be things like this. So the when we go back to the question from my listener who was asking, how can we use this to predict, how can we use evolution by natural selection to predict what colours dinosaurs would be? My answer was, we don't know. We don't. If we don't know yet, if we don't have the DNA, if we don't have other information, we're just guessing, it might well be the case that the colour of dinosaurs 
comes down to this Spandrel-like effect. If you're an alien and you've got nothing but access to the DNA of people, and you can see, by reading it with your fancy alien technology, you can, you can see that it codes for the production of this protein called hemoglobin. That would not tell you what colour hemoglobin, when it's got oxygen combined with it, is going to turn red. There's nothing in the DNA that can tell you that information. It could be like this. It could be kind of like this when it comes to predicting the colour of dinosaurs as well. That it might be a spandrel type thing, a side effect. And trying to understand at the evolutionary level why a dinosaur is the colour that it is. It might be like understanding, trying to understand why certain birds are the colour they are. Maybe it has an evolutionary advantage for some birds to be particular colours. Or maybe not. Maybe they just have some of them just have random colours. And it's not evolutionarily adapted for at all. It's not all that useful to be a white swan in some places as, compo- as compared to a black swan in other places. Maybe in the past it was, but now it's no longer that. In Australia, not only do we have black swans, we have black cockatoos as well. These black cockatoos, we can give a story about why there should be black cockatoos, and black swans for that matter. Maybe there was a huge wildfire, a bushfire, that turned everything black for a while there. And so in order to avoid predators, this adaptation arose. This mutation was caused by the random events that evolution that, that cause evolutionary mutations, okay, cosmic ray, whatever you want. So the cockatoos turned black, the swans turned black from being white, and then they were camouflaged against the black ash of the land after it was burnt by a wildfire or a bushfire. Okay, so there's a plausible story. But then explain how once the bushfire is over, why they haven't gone back to whatever colour they were. Why are they black still after millions of years perhaps don't know and why only those birds being black when we still have white birds and multicolored birds in australia as well why why aren't all birds the same color even though they live in the same area at times wildly diverse i don't know that there's a good explanation of these things that could be that those things are spandrels too random mutations that arrive that just get Copied. Now, maybe in some cases, yes, you can give good evolutionary stories about, well, it's mating behavior. Yes, okay. But in all cases, for every single bird, are you going to be able to provide exactly the same explanation? I doubt this. I doubt that the field of ornithology and specifically evolutionary ornithology could really account for all this stuff. It could be that some things are byproducts. for the same reason that haemoglobin has the colour that it does. And that could also be why homosexuality continues to arise. It could just be a byproduct. It could could be that the genes are coding for something else, if indeed it is genetic, by the way. And, you know, I'm not coming down hard and fast on one of those particular ideas. I don't think that matter is necessarily settled. I also don't think it's particularly important. But whatever the case, evolution cannot be used always to make a good prediction about the features of an organism. Some of them will be genuine adaptations, but some won't be. Some will just be annoying byproducts, <laughs> byproducts of, of other things that really were adapted for specific reasons. In the case of the bad back and the bad knee, well, that can just be because evolutionarily, we've adapted ourselves to walking upright, adapted ourselves, I'm talking as if we've got this arrow of evolution we don't the mutations have been selected for us standing upright for us being tall for us being bipedal and having this vision that looks forward and in standing up straight and being on our feet for long periods of time and being able to run reasonably fast and all this sort of stuff that also has the offshoot byproduct unfortunate effect in this particular case of 
causing bad backs in people as they age and causing bad knees in people as they age and, and feet problems and all the health problems that people tend to get by virtue of the fact that we stand up, that we're vertical. This is unusual amongst animals, isn't it? Bipedal apes. Most of them go running around on the ground. That's what evolution worked that out for a long time. We're relatively recent, and so we still have all these bodily problems that we have to go to doctors for and fix. And some doctors, of course, and scientists say, well, you can take your tonsils out without much trouble, and you can take your appendix out without much trouble. There are disagreements on this, of course. Some say you absolutely need both of these in order for your immune system to function properly. Others say, no, these are just artifacts, evolutionarily speaking, that can be removed without too much trouble in people. You can take out the appendix, you can take out the tonsils. In which case, again, spandrel, okay? <laughs> it's, a, it's a leftover byproduct. There's no reason why we were these organs were adapted for a particular purpose. This is where Dawkins and Gould can come together. We can just say, look, it's the genes that's being, that are being selected for. They need not have a particular function. The gene is just doing what it can to be replicated, whether or not it helps out the organism or not. So Dawkins is, of course, absolutely on side with this. If you remember, David talks about this in the beginning of Infinity, this idea that you could have genes which were optimal for the breeding of a particular species of bird, but that wouldn't be optimal for the gene. If the gene mutated such that a particular individuals within the species nested a bit earlier, then they would have an advantage. The genes would have an advantage, but it would be bad overall for the species because there's an optimal nesting time for the species. Like it could be, as he says in the book, the beginning of April. Now, if a particular individual started nesting earlier, well, that's no good for the whole species because maybe the food is not as plentiful and so on and so forth. But if this particular individual begins nesting earlier, good for them because they have access to food and they, they, they get a, they're ahead of the game. Even though overall for the whole species, if the entire species started doing that, it would be terrible for the species. So is, is that gene which appears to be successful, appears to be successful for the species better. Well, it is because it, it itself is going to get copied. It itself is going to be passed on at a rate, you know, bird for bird, so to speak, higher than the individuals that are nesting later, even though that's good for the entire species. Good for, as in the entire species is going to survive longer, even though the genes, particular genes, won't survive as long. Okay, go back to the beginning of infinity to understand more about that. Can we use evolution to predict what the color of dinosaurs would be, given we know the colors of some dinosaurs, let's say, if we have one that we don't know the color. I, I just say, well, firstly, I don't know, but these are the things we need to consider, that we cannot predict the growth of knowledge. We cannot predict the direction in which evolution goes. Evolution results from random mutations, and the selection of those random mutations has something to do with the environment. But then again, there are cases where a thing can just continue to get copied and copied and copied because that's useful for the gene, even if not for the organism, even if it's not beneficial for the organism. It could be useless for the organism, okay? Like the spandrels of St. Marco. They're kind of useless for the keeping the structure itself up, keeping the ceiling of the cathedral, the basilica, in the air. The, the spandrels don't, the, the decorative spandrels don't do anything for that. It's the archways that are the support structures. They're the real thing that is, that is keeping everything up. Asking the question of how is the red color of blood helping the organism to survive or what's the benefit of the red color? It's the wrong question. The red color is a byproduct. What's really going on is we've got oxygen being transported around okay, and that, that, that enables respiration. 
And it just so happens that it's a red color. But it's not the red that's been selected for. It's the oxygen-carrying capacity that has been selected for, if anything has. Okay, but these debates in evolutionary biology, very interesting, very informative, uh, well worth going into if you're interested in this particular area of science and philosophy. But for now, I think we should begin after that long introduction, going back to The Significance of Life, Chapter 8 of The Fabric of Reality. And let me pick it up where David gets to. In The Fabric of Reality, the real kicker of what is to come in the beginning of infinity. He writes in The Fabric of Reality, about halfway through Chapter 8 we're at now, quote, The point is that although all known life is based on replicators, what the phenomenon of life is really about is knowledge. We can give a definition of adaptation directly in terms of knowledge. An entity is adapted to its niche if it embodies knowledge that causes the niche to keep that knowledge in existence. Now we are getting closer to the reason why life is fundamental. Life is about the physical embodiment of knowledge. And in chapter 6, we came across a law of physics, the Turing Principle, which is also about the physical embodiment of knowledge. It says that it is possible to embody the laws of physics as they apply to every physically possible environment. In programs for a virtual reality generator, genes are such programs. Not only that, but all other virtual reality programs that physically exist or will ever exist are direct or indirect effects of life. For example, the virtual reality programs that run on our computers and in our brains are indirect effects of human life. So life is the means, presumably a necessary means, by which the effects referred to in the Turing Principle have been implemented in nature. This is encouraging, but it is not quite sufficient to establish that life is a fundamental phenomenon, for I have not yet established that the Turing Principle itself has the status of a fundamental law. A skeptic might argue that it does not. It is a law about the physical embodiment of knowledge, and the skeptic might take the view that knowledge is a parochial, anthropocentric concept rather than a fundamental one. That is, it is one of those things which is significant to us because of what we are, animals whose ecological niche depends on creating and applying knowledge, but not significant in an absolute sense. To a koala bear whose ecological niche depends on eucalyptus leaves, eucalyptus is significant. To the knowledge-wielding ape Homo sapiens, knowledge is significant. End quote. Now, listeners to TopCast, readers of The Begin Infinity, they know what's coming. I'm stealing David's thunder here, but I've been stealing David's thunder for the entire series of TopCast, I suppose, before he gets to the main point. We know what's coming. We know that anyone who claims that knowledge is not significant is trying to prophesy the growth of knowledge. To say life is not significant fundamentally to the universe, to the evolution of the universe, is trying to predict what life will do. An inherently impossible thing. In t- for two reasons. One, we can't predict the way in which evolution will go on to change the universe. And we can't predict what people will do. Or in other words, we can't predict the growth of knowledge, either evolutionary knowledge or explanatory knowledge. And so it doesn't matter what the process is throughout the universe. What people will do about that thing at some point in the future cannot be known to us now. And so this is the thunder. This is the thunder I'm stealing from David. He's going to use particular examples. It's really interesting. It's interesting for me. It's interesting for someone who's a fan of the work of David Deutsch to see how even paying what I thought was close attention to the book years ago, uh, I still come across stuff like this. And it's breathtaking in the fact that people today reading The Beginning of Infinity are taken aback by the way in which the ideas are so groundbreaking. And yet, as I keep on saying, here it is. Here it is in the fabric of reality back in 1997. These ideas being brought together. These ideas about the fundamental nature of knowledge and of life in this particular instance. 
Okay, so let's go back to the book. When talking about uh, this skeptic who says that knowledge is just this anthropocentric, parochial kind of thing, David says, quote, But the skeptic would be wrong. Knowledge is significant, not only to Homo sapiens, nor only on the planet Earth. I have said that whether something does or does not have a large physical impact is not decisive as to whether it is fundamental in nature. But it is relevant. Let us consider the astrophysical effects of knowledge. The theory of stellar evolution, the structure and development of stars, is one of the success stories of science. Note the clash of terminology here. The word evolution in physics means development or simply motion, not variation and selection. Only a century ago, even the source of the sun's energy was unknown. The best physics of the day provided only the false conclusion that whatever its energy source was, the sun could not have been shining for more than 100 million years. End quote. Just by the way, the reason why this was thought was this was prior to nuclear physics. They thought, well, the sun's shining, that's a big ball of fire there, therefore combustion. And so they knew how to measure the mass of the sun. That, 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 that's easy. That's Kepler's laws. That's the rate at which the Earth moves around the sun, taking 365 days per year to go around. Given the distance from the sun, 150 million kilometers, then the sun must have a particular mass. I won't go further through the physics of this, but look it up if you like. We know what the mass of the sun is. Very, very accurately, we can tell what the mass of the sun is. So therefore, if the only known source of light and heat that you have access to is chemical combustion, you can calculate how old the thing must possibly be, the maximum age of the sun. Then you come up with a number. Problem is, as an astrophysicist, coming up with this highly precise number using the best known physics of the day, it's completely at odds with what the evolutionary biologists and the geologists are telling you. The evolutionary biologists are saying, oh no, life has been around for billions of years. And the geologists are saying, oh, the planet Earth's got to be at least four and a half billion years old. And you're there going, oh, but hold on, <laughs> my precise mathematical astrophysical calculations are telling me that the sun could only be a hundred million years old. What's going on? <laughs> Just backing up, as David says, quote, <laughs> The best physics of the day provided only the false conclusion that whatever its energy source was, the sun could not have been shining for more than 100 million years. Interestingly, the geologists and paleontologists already knew from fossil evidence of what life had been doing that the sun must have been shining on the earth for a billion years at least. Then nuclear physics was discovered and it was applied in great detail to the physics of the interiors of stars. Since then, the theory of stellar evolution has matured we now understand what makes a star shine. Pausing there, just my reflection on this. So that they had a problem. They had a problem, a clash of ideas. The idea about how long the sun could have been shining and what evolutionary biology, the paleontologists and the geologists were telling us about the fossil record and the age of that. So these two things conflicted. This is what's going on today with things like dark matter and dark energy. We've got a conflict. We've got a conflict between our observations and our theories, our theory of what the observation is, I should say, we think that we're seeing an accelerating expansion of the universe. We think that we're seeing a rapidly rotating galaxy. We're invoking the idea of dark matter or perhaps a different theory of gravity in the case of dark matter or an accelerating expansion of the universe. There must be a resolution to this. Theories are wrong. Observations are wrong. It's a problem. We don't know what to say. Anyone who comes along right now and is absolutely thumping the table and saying this is the answer this solves the problems but that's a problem that's a problem at the moment because there is no neat explanation that solves that particular problem and it is consistent with everything else and makes sense in light of all the other things can do what the present theories can do and more we don't have that yet 
Okay, so let's keep going. David says, quote, We now understand what makes a star shine. For most types of star, we can predict what temperature, color, luminosity, and diameter it has at each stage of its history, how long each stage lasts, what elements the star creates by nuclear transmutation, and so on. This theory has been tested and borne out by observations of the sun and other stars. We can use the theory to predict the future development of the sun. It says that the sun will continue to shine with great stability for another 5 billion years or so. It will then expand to about 100 times its present diameter to become a red giant star. Then it will pulsate, flare into a nova, collapse and cool, eventually becoming a black dwarf. But will all this really happen to the sun? Has every star that formed a few billion years before the sun and with the same mass and composition already become a red giant as the theory predicts? Or is it possible that some apparently insignificant chemical processes on minor planets orbiting those stars might alter the course of nuclear and gravitational processes, having overwhelmingly more mass and energy? End quote. So that's the big question. That's what we're going to go on with about how could life and people change the evolution of stars. But just before we get there, just by the way, David has said there, you know, these theories, these great theories of nuclear physics, astrophysics, stellar nucleosynthesis, okay, the way in which elements are formed in the core of stars, they allow us to make predictions. Yes, they also, and I've been at pains to try and explain this to people, that even when it comes to physics, the true role, as David, of course, have, has said, has been the world's greatest proponent on this, an explanation isn't just about the predictions. An explanation invokes the existence of things. It's telling you what is really out there in reality and how what the, the causal links between things happen to be, but particularly the things that are happening out there. Not just predicting the future, but we know what exists out there in the universe, even if we can't see it. The theories of nuclear physics, as applied to stars and what stars are doing, not only allow us to predict how stars behave over time, what the sun is going to do, absent people, of course, but also tell us that, for example, there should be lots and lots of things like black holes and pulsars and brown dwarves, these cool, dim remnants left over from stars, that we do not observe, that, that in fact our present technology is hopelessly incapable of ever observing existing in other galaxies. This is one of the motivations, by the way, for the macho theory of dark matter. What's the macho theory of dark matter? Massive compact halo objects, these small stars, dead remnants of stars, the, the brown dwarves, so to speak, that have cooled down and we just can't see them. Now, these have been ruled out, by the way, with various observations. These, these stars likely cannot explain dark matter because, among other things, it's not merely the rotation of galaxies, of spiral galaxies, that, that, that tells us that there's some problem here. There's, there's this dark matter there in the galaxy, or that our theory of gravity is wrong, one or the other, or a third thing that we don't know. But this theory of astrophysics does tell us that the number of stars that are out there that we cannot see is vast is vast because we know that all stars end their lives in some lives, I say lives, end their main sequence existence, the burning of hydrogen, in an interesting way, which results in them being almost invisible, almost invisible. Black holes and is, is one possibility. Neutron stars. Okay, so neutron stars can generally be seen by radio telescopes, but not always. There could be some ancient ones that have slowed down their rate of rotation that we don't see or that are weak or not point. The beams aren't pointed in our direction. There's all sorts of reasons why we might not see the vast number of neutron stars that happen to be out there. And then dark brown dwarves, the the white dwarf that, is, that has cooled down rapidly, especially as 
the constituents of the so-called Population 3 stars, the very first stars that, that existed in the universe, perhaps they had properties slightly different to the stars today because, among other things, they were made almost purely of hydrogen and helium. Now, what does, it's unlike the sun, the sun has impurities because it is a second generation of stars. These very first generation of stars did not have the impurities. Some theories seem to suggest that these, these impurities really do act as a catalyst in causing a differential burning through of the, of the nuclear fuel. These population one stars burn things differently. Who knows what effects these things could have in real life? We can do simulations. We can do simulations of these first population stars, but the simulations are based upon the best present known physics. And again, as I say, who knows what really went on? One day we might be able to test these things because, of course, you have look-back time. You can look back in theory to see these stars. We just don't have the technology yet. I don't think we've seen a proper Population 3 star yet. Okay, so David's just asked us to consider whether or not there could be some apparently insignificant chemical processes on minor planets orbiting stars that could alter, alter the course of evolution of things like stars. He goes on to say, quote, if the sun does become a red giant, it will engulf and destroy the earth. If any of our descendants, physical or intellectual, are still on the earth at that time, they might not want that to happen. They might do everything in their power to prevent it. Is it obvious that they will not be able to? Certainly our present technology is far too puny to do the job, but neither our theory of evolution nor any other physics we know gives any reason to believe that the task is impossible. On the contrary, we already know in broad terms what it would involve, namely, removing matter from the sun. And we have several billion years to perfect our half-baked plans and put them into practice. If, in the event, our descendants do succeed in saving themselves in this way, then our present theory of stellar evolution, when applied to one particular star, the sun, gives entirely the wrong answer. And the reason why it gives the wrong answer is that it does not take into account the effect of life on stellar evolution. It takes into account such fundamental physical effects as nuclear and electromagnetic forces, gravity, hydrostatic pressure and radiation pressure, but not life. It seems likely that the knowledge required to control the sun in this way could not evolve by natural selection alone. So it must specifically be intelligent life on whose presence the future of the sun depends. Now, it may be objected that it is a huge and unsupported assumption that intelligence will survive on Earth for several billion years, and even if it does, it is a further assumption that it will then possess the knowledge required to control the sun. One current view is that intelligent life on Earth is even now a danger of destroying itself, if not by nuclear war, then by some catastrophic side effect of technological advance or scientific research. Many people think that if intelligent life is to survive the Earth, it will do so only by suppressing technological progress. End quote. Well, haven't things gotten even worse in many respects when it comes to this pessimistic notion? The list of things David could write now, okay, not merely nuclear war, catastrophic climate change, the AI apocalypse, terrible viruses, name your catastrophe. As I have said before, and David has mentioned there right at the end there, let me just read it again. He says, and this is so true today, quote, many people think that if intelligent life is to survive on Earth, it will do so only by suppressing technological progress, end quote. And this is what I call the master problem, the, the slowing down of progress. This is the one thing that absolutely guarantees, absolutely guarantees the non-survival of our species. Because if we slow down progress, it means we won't find the problem in time. It means we'll lack the wealth and the power in order to be able to do anything about it. We need more rapid progress. This is the most important thing. This is the most important problem. 
How can we make progress more rapidly? We do not know what the next problem we're going to encounter is going to be and how bad it will be. But if we want to be in the best possible position to do something about it, we need to be as wealthy and powerful and knowledgeable as possible. Anything less is putting us at more risk, absolutely putting us at more risk. Anyone who argues for slowing down progress, you need to take that argument personally. What they're saying is they want to slow down the rate of problem solving. They want to slow down the rate at which knowledge is created. They want to introduce more risks at a more rapid rate into the system. Error is everywhere, but error correction happens at a particular rate. Error correction happens at the rate that we know how to identify and correct the errors. That requires progress. It requires knowledge. It requires fundamental research into specifically areas like physics, mathematics, all areas of science, knowledge creation broadly, technology broadly. We need rapid progress everywhere as fast as possible. People who argue for the slowing of progress, no matter where it happens to be, are arguing against a particular kind of error correction there. And this includes, by the way, if I'm going to hop on to a somewhat political hobby horse, in ensuring that the third world, the people of the third world have access to cheap energy to fuel their technology production, their knowledge creation. They deserve to have access to all the technology we have. Absolutely they do. They deserve to have access to cheap information via the internet. The only way to do this feasibly right now is to give them energy as cheaply, as rapidly as possible. Asking them to rely on unreliable solar and wind, for example. Well, here we go, have a little bit of solar, have a little bit of wind. For one village out of a million people is not doing anything. This tokenistic way in which charitable foundations at times go about doing things rather than allowing the market to go in there, rather than allowing people to purchase the energy at the cheapest possible rate to fuel their knowledge economy is completely immoral. Not only because it hurts them, it hurts the entire world. It puts us at more risk. This needs to be taken personally, as I say. We need rapid knowledge production. We need scientists to have access to funds that are otherwise being taken away from them by governments because of taxation and so on and so forth. People would contribute vast sums of wealth to fundamental science if they weren't being taxed so highly. Because people understand better than the politicians in government where the funding should go. Governments don't know. Government committees don't know. They are captured by the political zeitgeist. So much of the funding goes into the same areas all the time. If we want to make rapid progress, if we want to avoid the problems, that some of which David mentions there, even just like the sun expanding in some billions of years, then we cannot, we cannot suppress technological progress, as he has observed there, suppress any kind of knowledge creation. It is that important epistemological moral maxim out of the beginning of infinity. We should not destroy the means of error correction. We should not slow down the means of error correction because this is to reduce our capacity to create the knowledge in time and to have the technology which can help us withstand the problems we have not yet encountered. And they're the important ones. Yes, of course, we need to address the problems now but not at the expense of being able to rapidly identify the problems of tomorrow. And that will take knowledge. That will take us being able to be agile in the capacity to identify those problems and correct the errors. Okay, off that hobby horse. Back to the significance of life. But it does come to bear on that. that is, uh, the significance of life is that, in, in, in terms of us, we are the thing that is creating the explanatory knowledge and correcting the errors. And the only entity that exists that cares about the rest of it 
that cares about all the other life on Earth. So let me just back up a little bit. David has just said, so they, the pessimists, quote, might fear that our developing the technology required to regulate stars is incompatible with surviving for long enough to use that technology, and therefore that life on Earth is destined one way or another not to affect the evolution of the sun. I am sure that this pessimism is misguided. And as I shall explain in chapter 14, there is every reason to conjecture that our descendants will eventually control the sun and much more. Admittedly, we can foresee neither their technology nor their wishes. They may choose to save themselves by emigrating from the solar system or by refrigerating the earth or by any number of methods inconceivable to us that do not involve tampering with the sun, end quote. And yeah, sure, and if they did any of those things, it's still an argument that they are fundamental. If there is this thing in the universe, the human species, which an outside observer would see is always escaping dying stars, thus going on to exist for billions, perhaps trillions of years in that universe, you'd want to understand that thing in the same way you'd want to understand nuclear fusion if you want to say you understand the universe at the most fundamental level. Of course, there is the problem here that in understanding that thing, humans, people, to understand it fully in a sense, we can't understand anything fully, but to have a good understanding of, let's say, what human beings are, is to understand everything else, because that's what people are. Okay? You're not going to find an understanding of people in their genome. You're going to find it in their minds. And what are you going to find in their minds? Theories about the rest of the universe. <laughs> This is the concept of self-similarity, this remarkable capacity we have of modeling the rest of physical reality in us. It is this unique feature that we have. Yeah, sure, the cat has a model as it walks around your house of the house in some way, shape or form. But it's not an explanatory model of the rest of the universe. They're not explaining it. You are. You have something. Okay, it might be inaccurate. Uh, when it comes to physics, it might not be as good as a professional physicist. When it comes to the Earth, it might not be as good as a professional geologist and so on and so forth. That's fine. But you nonetheless have something of an explanation of the rest of the universe. And good explanations need not to be true. We've always said that. They can contain misconception. Indeed, they could be almost completely misconceived. But they work for you. They're a good explanation to you of the rest of the universe. So everyone has this model of the universe. And so in order to understand people... If you're the so-called the, the proverbial outside observer, the metaphorical outside observer, you need to understand the entire universe. It's a, it's a strange thing. Let's keep going. On this point about people, David says, quote, On the other hand, they may wish to control the sun much sooner than would be required to prevent it from entering its red giant phase. For example, to harness its energy more efficiently, or to quarry it for raw materials to construct more living space for themselves. However, the point I am making here does not depend on our being able to predict that will happen, but only on the proposition that what will happen will depend on, on what knowledge our descendants will have and on how they choose to apply it. Thus, one cannot predict the future of the sun without taking a position on the future of life on Earth, and in particular, on the future of knowledge. End quote. And as we know, taking a strong position on the future of knowledge, therefore of, of people, is an impossibility. We cannot predict the growth of knowledge. We don't know what will happen in the future. But we cannot rule out that, for example, stars out there in the universe, specifically the sun, won't be affected by life. That's taking a strong position on knowledge. I don't know. You don't know. It's certainly a possibility. We would hope, we would hope that the evolution of stars begins to be affected by life at some point. We haven't seen any evidence of this so far. But anything not ruled out by the laws of physics is possible, given the right knowledge, as we know. 
Now, this next passage here is a breathtaking example of all the way back in 1997, in the fabric of reality, in this chapter 8, The Significance of Life, of David Deutsch reaching the conclusions and explaining to us the content of the beginning of infinity a decade and a half later. And even today is still breathtaking in, in the way that it reads in the year 2022. What does he say about the significance of life, in particular, the significance of people, and in particular, the significance of knowledge, explanatory knowledge? He says it right here, quote, The colour of the sun 10 billion years hence depends on gravity and radiation pressure, on convection and nucleosynthesis. It does not depend at all on the geology of Venus, the chemistry of Jupiter, or the pattern of craters on the moon. But it does depend on what happens to intelligent life on the planet Earth. It depends on politics and economics and the outcomes of wars. It depends on what people do, what decisions they make, what problems they solve, what values they adopt, and on how they behave towards their children. End quote. That remarkable passage encapsulates the significance of people, that we cannot predict the evolution of the sun, scientifically speaking, if we ignore the existence of life on Earth. We don't know what people will do billions of years hence, what choices they will make. Those depend upon knowledge created now and in the future, something that we cannot predict the evolution of. We cannot predict the creation of knowledge by simple definition of what the word creation means because it is a genuine act of creation. We are creating knowledge, bringing something into existence that didn't exist before at all and cannot be predicted by anything we have now by any process of so-called Bayesian inference generation, because our explanatory theories of the future will be crafted around problems yet to be encountered. And those will determine the way in which societies, civilizations, and all of humanity evolves here on planet Earth. And that will determine what we decide to do about the sun, and eventually, the rest of the cosmos. Okay, let's go back to the book. And David writes... One cannot avoid this conclusion by adopting a pessimistic theory of the prospects for our survival. Such a theory does not follow from the laws of physics or from any other fundamental principle that we know of and can be justified only in high-level human terms such as scientific knowledge has outrun moral knowledge or whatever. So in arguing from such a theory, one is implicitly conceding that theories of human affairs are necessary for making astrophysical predictions and even if the human race will, in the event, fail in its efforts to survive, does the pessimistic theory apply to every extraterrestrial intelligence in the universe? If not, if some intelligent life in some galaxy will ever succeed in surviving for billions of years, then life is significant in the gross physical development of the universe. Throughout our galaxy and the multiverse, stellar evolution depends on whether and where intelligent life has evolved, and if so, on the outcomes of its wars and how it treats its children. For example, we can predict roughly what proportions of stars of different colours, more precisely of different spectral types, there should be in the galaxy. To do that, we will have to make some assumptions about how much intelligent life there is out there and what it has been doing. Namely, that it has not been switching off too many stars. At the moment, our observations are consistent with there being no intelligent life outside our solar system. When our theories of the structure of the galaxy are further refined, 
we shall be able to make more precise predictions, but again, only on the basis of assumptions about the distribution and behaviour of intelligence in the galaxy. If those assumptions are inaccurate, we shall predict the wrong distribution of spectral types just as surely as if we were to make a mistake about the composition of interstellar gases, or about the mass of the hydrogen atom. And if we detect certain anomalies in this distribution of spectral types, this could be evidence of the presence of extraterrestrial intelligence. End quote. This is part of the discussion that the SETI scientists have, and the SETI project in general is trying to constrain using something called the Drake Equation. We've talked about the Drake Equation here on TopCast before. This is the way in which people try to constrain how many intelligent civilizations there will be out there somewhere or other. And among the terms in the Drake Equation is, of course, the length of time for which civilizations exist. <laughs> so you might, you might have intelligent civilizations out there, but they could destroy themselves. And this is what people are often animated about here on Earth, uh, whether or not there is this great filter out there somewhere or other that prevents civilizations from reaching the level of technology required for them to travel intergalactically, let's say. And if they don't quite get there and they're snuffed out, well, it might mean that the time for which they're transmitting radio signals is a very, very narrow window indeed. So this is another reason why we don't tend to detect signals from outer space, because intelligent civilizations like ours invent radio, use radio for about 100, 200, 300 years, and then they get snuffed out by, you know, the great nuclear accident or catastrophic climate change or by creating the AGI apocalypse or who knows what. There's some filter, something stopping the intelligence from taking over the entire universe, so to speak. Of course, we could simply be the first intelligent civilization in our universe. Or not, we don't know. Our observations are consistent with, well, just about every theory that you can think of right now, including the one that they have actually colonized the, almost the entire galaxy, but are hiding. We don't know. We have no evidence. It's just a problem of whether or not there is intelligent life out there or not. David goes on to say, quote, The cosmologists... John Barrow and Frank Tipler have considered the astrophysical effects that life would have if it survived for long after the time at which the sun would otherwise become a red giant. They have found that life would eventually make major qualitative changes to the structure of the galaxy and later to the structure of the whole universe. I shall return to these results in chapter 14. So once again, any theory of the structure of the universe in all but its earlier stages must take a position on what life will or will not be doing by then. There is no way of getting away from it. The future history of the universe depends on the future history of knowledge. Astrologers used to believe that cosmic events influence human affairs. Science believed for centuries that neither influences the other. Now we see that human affairs influence cosmic events. End quote. And as I like to say here on TalkCast over and again, people are cosmically significant. And by people, I do not just mean the parochial case of human beings. I mean... Anything that is capable of generating explanatory knowledge, extraterrestrial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, or ourselves. All of those entities, people, are able to explain the reality around them, and in doing so, can gain some control over the universe. And as time goes on, and the explanations become more and more in line with reality, their accuracy increases, then the power of that civilization also increases. This, in a sense, is what the power of a civilization would be. The repertoire of possible transformations that it can make 
of the universe, the proportion of the universe that it can transform. And that has to do with, of course, wealth. Wealth is a repertoire of physical transformations that can be made. And the more of those that you can do, the more powerful your civilization happens to be. Let's keep on going. David writes, quote, It is worth reflecting on where we went astray in underestimating the physical impact of life. It was by being too parochial. That is ironic because the ancient consensus happened to avoid our mistake by being even more parochial. In the universe as we see it, life has affected nothing of any astrophysical significance. However, we see only the past, and it is only the past of what is spatially near us that we see in any detail. End quote. So that's very interesting, of course. So we're only seeing the nearby region of space, and the nearby region of space we are seeing, seeing it as it was, because of the finite speed of light. We are seeing you know, the nearest star as it was four years ago. We are seeing the nearest galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, as it was 2.2 million years ago. So these, these relatively close regions of space that we observe, we're seeing them as they were in the past. So we're biased. We have a bias of seeing our own history in the past, and we're biased in seeing spatially close regions to us as they were in the past as well. So of course, we're not seeing what the future is going to be like, and the future might very well be radically different to what the present and the past is. We already know that it is here on Earth. New York City looks nothing like it did a century ago. So we already know that there has been a radical transformation here on the surface of the Earth, in certain parts of the surface of the Earth. This is only going to continue apace, and eventually the solar system will be transformed, and eventually the galaxy will be transformed. But there's no point looking around at what has already gone, what has already come to pass, and what exists around us right now, because we're looking into the past. So we should expect things to be more primitive. <laughs> now, whether or not, of course, distant alien civilizations got there first, that's another matter. But perhaps they didn't. There are good arguments as to why, for example... We shouldn't necessarily expect evolution to be going on a whole lot faster out there as compared to here. That's another story. Let's not get into it. I refer the listener to the book Rare Earth by Ward and Brownlee that I have mentioned before. Okay, so I'm going to skip through a bunch of this chapter and I'll pick it up where David begins to explain a little bit more about evolution itself and evolution as it happens with DNA. And he says, quote, we know that DNA in living organisms is naturally subject to random variations, mutations, in the sequence of A, C, G, and T molecules. According to the theory of evolution, the adaptations in genes, and therefore the genes very existence, depends on such mutations having occurred. Because of mutations, populations of any gene contain a degree of variation, and individuals carrying genes with higher degrees of adaptation tend to have more offspring than other individuals. Most variations in a gene make it unable to cause its replication because the altered sequence no longer instructs the cell to manufacture anything useful. Others merely make replication less likely. That is, they narrow the gene's niche. But some happen to embody new instructions that make replication more likely. Thus, natural selection occurs. With each generation of variation in replication, the degree of adaptation of the surviving genes tends to increase. Now, a random mutation caused, for instance, by a cosmic ray strike, causes variation not only within the population of the organism in one universe, but between universes as well. A cosmic ray is a high-energy subatomic particle, and like a photon emitted from a torch, it travels in different directions in different universes. So when a cosmic ray particle strikes a DNA strand and causes a mutation, some of its counterparts in other universes are missing their copies of the DNA strand altogether. 
while others are striking it at different positions and hence causing different mutations. Thus, a single cosmic ray strike on a single DNA molecule will in general cause a large range of different mutations to appear in different universes. When considering what a particular object may look like in other universes, we must not look so far afield in the multiverse that it is impossible to identify a counterpart in the other universe of that object. Take a DNA segment, for instance. In some universes, there are no DNA molecules at all. Some universes containing DNA are so dissimilar to ours that there is no way of identifying which DNA segment in the other universe corresponds to the one we are considering in this universe. It is meaningless to ask what our particular DNA segment looks like in such a universe, so we must consider only universes that are sufficiently similar to ours for this ambiguity not to arise. For instance, we could consider only those universes in which bears exist, and in which a sample of DNA from a bear has been placed in an analyzing machine, which has been programmed to print out 10 letters representing the structure at a specified position relative to certain landmarks on a specified DNA strand. The following discussion would be unaffected if we were to choose any other reasonable criterion for identifying corresponding segments of DNA in nearby universes. By any such criterion, the bear's gene segment must have the same sequence in almost all nearby universes as it does in ours. This is because it is presumably highly adapted, which means that most variants of it would not succeed in getting themselves copied in most variants of their environment, and so could not appear at that location in the DNA of a living bear. In contrast, when the non-knowledge-bearing DNA segment undergoes almost any mutation, the mutated version is still capable of being copied. Over generations of replication, many mutations will have occurred, and most of them will have had no effect on replication. Therefore, the junk DNA segment, unlike its counterpart in the gene, will be thoroughly heterogeneous in different universes. It may well be that every possible variation of its sequence is equally represented in the multiverse. That is what we should mean by its sequence being strictly random. So the multiverse perspective reveals additional physical structure in the bear's DNA. In this universe, it contains two segments with the sequence TCG, TCG, TTTC. One of them is part of a gene, while the other is not part of any gene. In most other nearby universes, the first of the two segments has the same sequence. TCG, TCG, TTTC, as it does in our universe. But the second segment varies greatly between nearby universes. So from the multiverse perspective, the two segments are not even remotely alike. End quote. What this is saying is that in the DNA strand that you have inside of your body, or inside of a bear's body, let's say, you have the thing called the genome, the set of all the genes, and then you have this other stuff, the junk DNA. Now, it's the genes that code for stuff. It contains the knowledge-bearing information. The junk DNA does not. Not everything on the DNA contains useful information. Or does it? After all, the junk DNA is actually quite useful information for forensic scientists. Apparently, forensic scientists use the junk DNA to identify criminals at a crime scene when you leave blood behind because your junk DNA is so unique to you compared to everyone else. Whereas the, the actual coding information on the genome, your genes, are similar to other people. So it's more telling of you, your junk DNA is more unique to you than the rest of your DNA, which is the genome. But it doesn't constitute evolutionary knowledge, of course. Whatever the case, David is getting on to the fact that this living material, this DNA, is the stuff that contains knowledge, as he says. 
quote. Again, we were being too parochial, and we were led to the false conclusion that knowledge-bearing entities can be physically identical to non-knowledge-bearing ones. And this in turn cast doubt on the fundamental status of knowledge. But now we have come almost full circle. We can see that the ancient idea that living matter has special physical properties was almost true. It is not living matter, but knowledge-bearing matter that is physically special. Within one universe, it looks irregular. Across universes, it has a regular structure, like a crystal in the multiverse. So knowledge is a fundamental physical quantity after all, and the phenomenon of life is only slightly less so. End quote. So, if a bear exists here in this universe, there are lots of other universes adjacent to ours, which also contain bears. Why? Because the set of genes that creates a bear he happens to have useful information. That's a useful structure for evolution to have built in order for genes to get replicated. Knowledge-bearing entities contain information, information that is useful, that tends to get itself copied. And so therefore it is going to be replicated, not only again and again in any given particular universe, but across the multiverse. And so it is this structure which tends to grow across the multiverse. Information flow is what is happening in the multiverse because of the creation of knowledge, both of the evolutionary kind and the explanatory kind. And it tends to grow like this crystal in the multiverse, as David says there. But this is knowledge, not truth. I say again, knowledge, not truth. Knowledge is the thing that tends to get itself copied. And if you were able to have a God's eye view of the multiverse, you would see these structures growing, governed by the growth of knowledge. But they might very well be, you know, huge religions or political movements which might have little to do with truth. We don't know, but they could still be really, really big. On the other hand, you would also have science, which presumably would have something to do with the truth. But by looking, you wouldn't be able to tell. You would just know that they are both knowledge, useful information. Now, in either case, could that be completely disconnected from the truth? No, not completely disconnected from the truth. But the size of such a crystal in the multiverse wouldn't tell you about the closeness to truth of that particular thing. Let's keep going. David says, quote, Imagine looking through an electron microscope at a DNA molecule from a bear's cell and trying to distinguish the genes from the non-gene sequences and to estimate the degree of adaptation of each gene. In any one universe, this task is impossible. The property of being a gene, that is of being highly adapted, is, insofar as it can be detected within one universe, overwhelmingly complicated. It is an emergent property. You would have to make many copies of the DNA with variations, use genetic engineering to create many bear embryos for each variant of the DNA, allow the bears to grow up and live in a variety of environments representative of the bear's niche, and see which bears succeed in having offspring. But with a magic microscope that could see into other universes, which I stress is not possible, we are using theory to imagine or render what we know must be there, the task would be easy. The genes would stand out from the non-genes, just as cultivated fields stand out from a jungle in an aerial photograph, or like crystals that have precipitated from solution. They are regular across many nearby universes, while all the non-gene junk DNA segments are irregular. As for the degree of adaptation of a gene, this is almost as easy to estimate. The better adapted genes will have the same structure over a wider range of universes. They will have bigger crystals. Now go to an alien planet and try to find the local life forms, if any. Again, this is a notoriously difficult task. 
you would have to perform complex and subtle experiments whose infinite pitfalls have been the subject of many a science fiction story. But if only you could observe through a multiverse telescope, life and its consequences would be obvious at a glance. You need only look for complex structures that seem irregular in any one universe, but are identical across many nearby universes. If you see any, you will have found some physically embodied knowledge. Where there is knowledge, there must have been life, at least in the past. End quote. So that's great. That, again, just underlines the point I was making about the fact that the multiverse viewed from a God's eye perspective will have the larger structures in it governed by the growth of knowledge in some way. Whether that knowledge is evolutionary knowledge or more likely explanatory knowledge in the far distant future, if you could look at the whole block multiverse, past and future, it is knowledge growth that is going to govern the bigger structures across the multiverse, across the individual universes. And the universes where knowledge is growing, because of course some universes, life might not have arisen, in which case knowledge cannot arise at all. But in the universes where knowledge tends to arise, the universes become more similar over time. Why? Because they tend to converge on the useful information. They tend to converge on something to do with reality over time. But again, all of this is merely thinking in the abstract. We can't get outside of the universe this is just a thought experiment to illuminate the structure of the multiverse, something that otherwise is hidden from us. Unless you're doing physics and you're looking at the equations and you're trying to understand what those equations and the formalism are telling you about the nature of reality. Skipping a little more and just reaching the conclusion of this chapter now. And David says, quote, What will catch our magically enhanced eye? In a single universe, the most striking structures are galaxies and clusters of galaxies. But those objects have no discernible structure across the multiverse. Where there is a galaxy in one universe, a myriad of galaxies with quite different geographies are stacked in the multiverse. And so it is everywhere in the multiverse. Nearby universes are alike only in certain gross features, as required by the laws of physics, which apply to them all. Thus, most stars are quite accurately spherical everywhere in the multiverse, and most galaxies are spiral or elliptical. But nothing extends far into other universes without its detailed structure changing unrecognizably. Except, that is, in those few places where there is embodied knowledge. In such places, objects extend recognizably across large numbers of universes. Perhaps the Earth is the only such place in our universe at present. In any case, such places stand out in the sense I have described as the location of the processes, life and thought, that have generated the largest distinctive structures in the multiverse, end quote. And that's a brilliant way for David to have ended this particular chapter and what people might have missed the import of the first time in reading. Because he's saying there that if you were able to look at the multiverse, the largest, most distinctive structures in them are those determined by life and thought. That's a profound claim. That is a cosmically important claim. That is a claim that dwarfs the kind of claims that are made in religion, where although people are significant, they're not the things that determine the entire fate of the cosmos. Or are they? Well, normally it's the gods or God that determines the fate of the entire cosmos. But here, it's the people. It's thought and life that is determining the overall structure of the largest structure that exists in physical reality, the multiverse itself. The largest structure in those is determined by life and thought, ultimately by people. Well then, I can't top that for now. 
So until next time, bye-bye.